Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Well, I'm hoping that the sound quality of our podcast from week to week is getting better, because as we're sitting here in our little office space, we have pillows all over the windows and blankets all over the floors. And the the little side space where we record our podcast, it doesn't actually have climate control. So like we're just padding it out and we are sweating right now. And I'm sitting on a pillow because I'm too short to reach the mic. Yeah. So like if you're listening to this in your car, <laughs> you want to get the full experience, just crank on the heat. Or if you're in Southern California, just turn your air off and roll down your windows. No, turn your air off and keep your windows rolled up. Is oh, more yes. kind of what it's like. Sorry, keep the windows up. But the good news is that summer's over. And I is keep, it, though? I keep forgetting that it's over and that it ended like a month and a half ago because it's still super hot. Well, where we are, yes. Yeah. Though yesterday was nice. It was only 80. <laughs> it felt really great yesterday. Right. But we're getting into the fall. And fun fact about this fall, I don't know if you knew this, uh, but next month, we actually have an important election coming up. No way. I had no idea. Yeah, it's actually, it's super important. <laughs> yeah, we have a presidential election coming up. And at the time of this recording, the first presidential debate was about a week ago. It was only a week ago. Yeah, but forever seared into our brains. You would be correct. And One week ago. Regardless of which side of the aisle you fell on, everybody agreed that it was just an absolute train wreck. Yeah, I am not proud to admit this, but I think that was the very first presidential debate I've ever fully watched. And that's not and how they're supposed to go. Yeah, I remember you were telling me that in the middle of it. You're like, this is not normal to the way presidential debates go. I feel like that's the theme song of 2020. This is not normal. Like, if you were just coming alive to the world in 2020, I just feel like someone needs to be telling you at least once a week. Just so you know, this is not normal. It's not usually like this. <laughs> yeah, and then a couple of days ago, we had the vice presidential debate, and that was a lot easier to watch because there wasn't shouting and berating and interrupting as much. But yeah, it was a bit more humane. That's how a debate is typically supposed to go where you can actually listen to both sides. I, what I found interesting about that is that all of the commentary on social media, like the, the day after and in the, the couple days following, depending on which, what side of the aisle you're on, you were declaring victory for your side. So like if you're voting for Biden and Harris, you're like, yeah, Kamala just wrecked him. But if you're voting for Trump and Pence, like, yeah, Pence just took her to the cleaner. And it's interesting because I'm friends with both on social media. You're friends with both sides. Oh, I was like... People with, on both sides okay. of, the, I was like, of the equation. You're friends with Trump and Biden? Yes. Okay. Personal friends. Yeah, I was like, I feel like you can't just throw that around like, oh, I'm friends. I'm in their top eight. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you to know that you saying that, you just proved how old you were. Yeah. MySpace. Yes. Google it. Where was that? Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you off. <laughs> Oh, but I have friends on both sides of the conversation. And what's interesting is that if you look at the posts of someone on the left and you look at the posts of someone on the right, you would think that they had seen two completely different events. Right, because they were both declaring victory. 
Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, like my candidate just absolutely destroyed the other one. And I think that's just kind of indicative of where we are as a people right now, both the first debate and the second debate. The first debate in that we just don't listen to each other and we berate one another and we talk over one another and it's just there's no nuance, there's no kindness in our public discourse. And I think the second debate is also a microcosm of just where we are as a society as well. Not so much in the debate itself, but in the analysis of the debate, depending on what you already believed, there's nothing that will ever get you to admit that someone in an opposing party ever made a good point about anything. Which really seems pretty mind-blowing in terms of the general understanding of being humans who can critically think. And as yeah, we don't do that. Right. Right. That's what's so hard for me right now is is listening to people and thinking, wait, did you stop to to listen at all? Or is it really this mentality that if you are not for us, then you are against us, regardless of what is being said? Right. That's a pretty What's scary way drawn? to live. Mm-hmm. And, and really what we've seen not only in these debates, but in our public discourse, is that we're in a really tribal, vulgar place right now as a country. And this is true of everybody in the country as a group. But I think it's also true of Christians, where we don't stand out as much from that culture as we ought to. And what's interesting in the midst of that is that as we are vulgar, as we are unkind, uncompassionate, unempathetic, not listening. In the midst of all that, we're still claiming moral superiority on either side of the coin. And it's it's almost head spinning. Like even if you look at some of the supporters of each candidate in this race, and we're not so much getting into the politics today, but just talking about the the nature of the conversation. Yeah, recently I was driving and had I guess just been observing more of the political signs and flags on people's lawns than I normally would stop and look at. And I was really surprised at the way this political season has has turned because you usually think of politics and you think of some level of professionalism, some level of kindness, politeness. Civility, yeah. Yeah, like I had seen a few Trump flags that had the F word in it, and like this, and then another one is a huge, like twenty foot flag that says Trump twenty twenty, no more BS. But it didn't say BS; it spelled it out. Yes, or Trump twenty twenty, make the liberals cry. It just that's really antagonistic, <laughs> like unnecessarily. I was, and I was reading so many of, I and mean, there's a few, you know, that have the the classic slogan "Make America Great Again," but. The other ones that I was reading, I was just kind of wincing and thinking, wow, these are all so very aggressive as they're trying to support their candidate. And I know that I haven't been around for a ton of presidential elections, but I've seen a few of them. And this is the first time that I've seen this kind of attack during the political season. And the other side is not void of those things either. Right. This week where Trump has come down with COVID-19, there have been a lot of people on the other side of things that have been really vulgar 
across social media saying like, I hope the MF dies. It would be so great. You know, and just, it's really alarming and truly far too often the church is a part of this. And it's this weird thing where you're being so vulgar and mean and spiteful and vengeful and sinful. And yet Mm. at the same time as you're doing that, claiming moral superiority over the other group. Right. And those those things can't go together. Right. I think that's why it's so head spinning. Yeah. And so at the risk of sounding morally superior, let's talk about that. Let's break that down and talk about why that's (laughs) such a problem. And why we we actually hope we're not sounding that way on this podcast. But that leads us into the topic of really what we want to talk about, which is this understanding of moral superiority and the fact that I think Christians can fall into this category a lot easier than other people because there are morals that we should be living by. There is a a way of life that we are called to live by and it's far more than just morals and virtues, but there should be a level of good morals and good virtues that come out of the Christian life. And I think because of that, we have the tendency to jump on our high horse a little bit more often than other people. We do, and we shouldn't. No, and we should guard ourselves against it. And it's easy to fall into. I, sh- I mean, so I'm sure I'm easy. falling into it most days of the week. I mean, you probably are. But I don't want to. So that's why. So that's why today we want to talk about it. And we want to dive into a few biblical passages that will really reset and refocus and hopefully be a salve to your righteous anger turned into sinful moral superiority in this season <laughs> of life. Because there's so many things to be outraged about and to genuinely be outraged about. Right. With legitimate cause. But we don't want to fall into this self righteous, morally superior attitude. That is at the same time demeaning people. And it's, it's ironic too because a lot of times we're demeaning people because we think that they're, they're people who demean people. Mm. Yes. Yeah, Sorry, I had to let that sink a, in a little bit. It's a weird you, like house of mirrors kind of a thing going on. Yeah. I had to sit with that for just a second. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. So, certainly. So what are some biblical passages that kind of speak to this that will push us back on our heels a little bit? Yeah, the first one I want us to look at is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, which I'm sure many of us probably know, if not all of it verbatim. We certainly know some key parts of of these verses. And this verse is most often quoted by someone who's about to do something stupid, but there's a legitimate application that we want to hit in right here. Yes, so we're hoping we're not about to do something stupid by calling out this verse right so uh, matthew 7 verse 1 through 5 judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it it will be measured to you why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye where there is the log in your own eye you hypocrite First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I always like that when gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says, you hypocrite. <laughs> Every time I was like, oh, this feels so Gets abrasive. You. But yeah. yeah, Jesus really got after it. And this is the verse that's often quoted by someone who's like, hey, man, judge not lest you be judged. Now, 
I'm going to take a rip off this bong again. Yeah. <laughs> or something <laughs> something else foolish. <laughs> yeah, but that's n- not exactly what this verse is talking about. Really, the issue here is that we shouldn't make moral judgments against other people. Not so much that we like, shouldn't we make shouldn't... moral judgments, that we shouldn't condemn somebody. Like the, the, the word that he's using is right. that you're condemning them to hell. Yes. And there's a truth that we should keep other believers accountable in walking in step with what we're called to do, but we should not be condemning someone else for the sin that is happening in their life because the reality is we are all living with some kind of sin in our own life. Like the verse says, it's really easy for you to look at the small speck in someone else's eye but you are missing the giant log that is hanging out of your eye. It's making fun of the person who's trying to pull the speck out. Like, how do you even see that speck when you have this massive log hanging out of your eye? Your eyeball, yeah. Right. I actually grew up with my mom quoting this verse a lot to me and my brother. Whenever we would like bicker or mad at one another or just say mean things about each other, my mom would always quote this verse. And she was right most of the time when she used it. Like the things I was frustrated and irritated about my brother and thinking the way that I do life is so much better than his. It was so wrong because that was... The way I fold my t-shirts is so much better. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's hard when you're living with other people. And you know, I think in marriage that's come out even more, right? Where we're living together and... The way that you do the dishes might not be the right way. <laughs> it just might not be the right way. But in the end of the day, that's that's but a speck of the issue compared to the massive log that is protruding from my own eyes. Yeah, and this is so applicable to now where we're so quick to jump on somebody else, and particularly in the world of social media, make a moral judgment on someone else. And not only to make a moral judgment, but to make a moral condemnation. And and part of that is virtue signaling, like I'm the righteous one by doing that. But man, imagine if all the skeletons in your closet were revealed. No, thank you. Like how small would you feel? Like that's that's kind of the picture that's being... uh, drawn here that there's a there's a log in your eye you need to remove your own log before you help somebody out with their spec and chances are if you just spent your time removing a log from your eye you can be a little bit more ginger and sticking your finger in somebody else's eye to help them with their spec Mm. and so i think the the way that this plays out in today's public discourse is on one side if you're pro-life but you're spiteful vindictive vulgar and mean towards others then like you missed it or if you're pro-prison reform or for helping refugees, but you're, like, hateful and moral, morally sup- superior, then, like, you, you missed it. And, like, you can know the whole Bible, but if you actively hate other people, your sin is actually worse than the moral shortcomings of the people that you are choosing to hate. That's a bold statement, but I, I, I stand by that. That you can know the whole Bible, you can know all the right moral judgments, but if you have hate in your heart towards anyone and everyone who isn't exactly in line with you, then your sin is worse than the sin you're calling out in them. You have a log in your eye. Yeah. And that's hard to accept. But as Christians, we are called to walk down this road of continuous transformation and continuous sanctification where 
that evil and ugly and wickedness and sinfulness in our hearts is continuing to be washed away. And if we think we've ever arrived on this side of eternity, we have a huge problem because that's counter to the gospel. The gospel is about continuous transformation and you continuing to be more like Jesus. And I think that's the issue that we fall into when we have this moral superiority over someone else is we think we've arrived. And that is such shaky ground to stand on because you have not arrived. And we need to continue to walk in that mindset of humility and even gratefulness for the grace of Jesus that is continuously extended to us in the midst of us transforming and being sanctified as we are becoming more like him. And so we are not there yet. And God's continuing to extend grace upon grace to us, which that alone should continue to humble us rather than make us feel like we have some high ground that we're standing on. Yeah. And another story that Jesus told to point out the ridiculousness of being a spiteful, vengeful, unforgiving, moral, morally superior person. He tells a story about a servant who was indebted to a ruler. And I can't remember what the exact amount was because it was in first century currency. So for the sake of the story, we can say he, he owed the king like a billion dollars and he was going to go to prison because he couldn't pay his debts he was going to be sold into slavery so that at least his life could begin to pay for the debt and he begged for mercy from the ruler and the the ruler said you know what i'm going to absolve you of this debt and you're free to go and so obviously the servant is excited and jubilant and just full of joy and so he goes walking through town and he sees someone who owes him money and it was a it was a large sum of money it was like a couple days worth of labor. Let's say he owed him like fifteen hundred bucks. Like fifteen hundred bucks is a lot of money. It's not a billion dollars, but it's it's a lot of money. And he sees this other servant who owes him money, and he literally puts him in a chokehold and says, "You owe me fifteen hundred dollars. Give me all this money." And when word got back to the king, the king's like, "What? How can this? It's so absurd and so offensive that you would be choking a guy out for a measly fifteen hundred bucks when I forgave you of a billion? And so that's when he brought him into slavery. And really the moral of that story is is that if you are a vengeful, spiteful, unforgiving person who's morally superior, then maybe you haven't actually fully grasped onto the grace that Jesus has offered to you. Because if you did, then you would be probably singing a different tune. And that's like straight to the heart. Yeah. And as we just look at scripture in regards to this topic, I wanted to have us look at First Timothy 1, verse 15. And it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think we forget that we were marked by sin and that sin fully encompassed who we were before Christ. And once we come to Christ, we are excited about his grace and his love and his mercy. And we want to live there, which is a good place to live, certainly. But we can't forget the price that was paid for us. 
and the fact that we didn't deserve the grace and the mercy and the love. Yeah. And I think keeping this in just this mindset of like, hey, like this, the sin that I have in my life is significant. Like I can look at somebody else and I can see the tip of their sin iceberg and I can make judgments or accusations about what it is underneath. But the fact of the matter is I see my own whole iceberg and keeping this mindset like, yeah, I'm very well acquainted with my own shortcomings, my own sins, my own iceberg of spiritual uncleanliness that if we're keeping that at the forefront, then that's bound to knock us down a few pegs. And this isn't to say that you need to be morose and be like that guy in the Da Vinci Code who like whipped himself. Remember that guy? I don't know if I watched that movie. That's because you're a Christian. Yeah. No. <laughs> but, and you're a heathen. Yeah. yeah I'm, a, we I'm know. a heathen and I watched it. We know. And this guy was like whipping himself. Like you don't have to do that. Hmm. But doesn't hurt to take a step back and just reevaluate who it is that you are and the things that are in your life that are still a work in progress. And first John tells us that if we confess our sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you just gotta, you just gotta keep bearing that in mind. I think we get a little too excited about fighting the good fight and we forget that the good fight begins within my own heart. Hmm. That's a really, really good point. I think, especially in the climate that we're living in, as we, in some respects, have to choose a side when it comes to voting. Like, you have to choose someone. You have to vote your conscience, or you can choose not to vote. But that's still a decision you're making. So you're still having to make some sort of a decision And the reality is there isn't any one decision that we could claim fits the entire gospel of Jesus. There are shortcomings on both sides. There are certainly things that we can look at very clearly and say, yes, scripture agrees with that. So we should vote for that. But yikes, it doesn't agree with these other things. But the other side does. And so there is that tension that we're holding. And of course, voting is important. But our vote should not lead us to some sense of moral superiority over the other side because someone else wrestled with it and came came to a different conclusion. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, all he did was you, you, you pushed a piece of ink on paper. You know what I mean? No, but you're standing for something. You are. Like you're, I get what you're saying, it's but... In, it's like, even in that, like, the like my moral superiority is that I mm. I pressed in my ink three inches above where you pressed in your ink. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I still it's, there's think... More, it, there's, there's more, more to it you're that. making But just to point so. out the ridiculousness yes, of what yes. we're talking about. And there's one more verse that we want to look at, or at least one more verse... Romans twelve three it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. A lot of us should be thinking with a lot more sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so in this context, what Paul is talking about is different spiritual gifts in the church and how those are to be used for the benefit of other believers. And I guess what had been going on is that there are certain gifts that were in a place of privilege— And so people were fighting over which one was the best one and how it should be used. And so they were trying to diminish and downplay others in order to puff themselves up. And so what Paul is saying is that whatever your gift is, don't focus on trying to make yourself into something by putting someone else down. 
just use that gift to its fullest the and you know to the best that you can be and let your love be genuine is something that he says later on in the passage and so being able to do that fundamentally comes from a place of security and i think that's where this verse links into this conversation here because a lot of times when we lash out when we try to puff ourselves up when we try to make ourselves feel morally superior or any kind of superior oftentimes where that comes from it's a place of insecurity and so we want to feel secure and so in order to do that we berate and beat down others so that we feel less bad about our own condition and it makes complete sense in this current culture of chaos that you're just kind of trying to find any kind of meaning any kind of ground to stand on and then just you know pick it and then beat the other side that's only natural but that's not christian like we have such a better way we can stand on such a firmer place of security in jesus and it's not to say that you can't choose a side but you should hold that side loosely because you should be holding to the call that jesus has given for all christians far more tightly then we should hold the side of our political view right now. And I think a lot of politics is fear and anger because fear and anger are what get people to vote. Like happiness and cooperation don't excite, but fear and anger do. And so that's what's pumped into us. And we have this natural response to it that we completely forget the security that we have in Jesus, that we can engage in these conversations, but we can actually be reasonable in them because ultimately we're not placing our hope in these things anyways. Like we're fighting for what we believe is right. We're fighting for what we believe is best. We want to have the best ideas, the best ethics into the system because we, we want it to produce goodness. But ultimately at the end of the day, the, what gives us the ability to hold it more loosely and more humbly is that we have a sure hope in Jesus, that he is sovereign and in control. But also, at the end of the day, he's going to make everything the way it's supposed to be. And maybe it's not going to be the way it's supposed to be in 2020, but there will be a time when everything that is jacked up about the world will be fixed by him. That will happen because he is sovereign, and he is powerful, and he is on the throne, and not because we stood our ground and bashed the other side. Like, he doesn't need us to fight in that way. Yeah. That's I- never been the call. That's never been our defense or our offense. We we have a different way as Christians, and sometimes that's hard to distinguish in the social climate that we're living in right now. But I think it's important that we take a step back and see how is my response and the things that are coming out of my mouth and the things that I'm standing for and the things that I'm posting and the things that I'm rallying behind. How do those things showcase Jesus versus singing the battle cry of my political party? Yeah, and this is a balance because I've definitely heard people say, you know what, God is sovereign as kind of a smokescreen or an excuse to be disengaged, like God is sovereign. So like, you know, racial justice, like that's just all going to work itself out or God is sovereign. So, you know, the lives of the unborn, you know, it's all going to work out. 
and I don't really have to do anything or be worried about it. I don't think that's a healthy approach. But at the same time, God is sovereign. And that's not an excuse to sit on our heels and be completely disengaged. But as we are engaged, we can do so with a sense of calm and confidence and uh, an understanding that he's in control. Which is a very different perspective than the world has, obviously, because it's like if everything is riding on policy or whatever it might be, then it makes sense why it would be like this. But if there's something, if there's a, if there's a greater force behind us than policy and politics, then we can walk a lot more confidently and a lot less spitefully. And we can think critically and not just speak critically. And I think really what's at stake here and why we're so riled up about this is that really what's at stake here is our Christian witness. Because Christians, we should look different than the culture around us. Because there's something broken with the culture around us and the solution to that is Jesus. But if Jesus doesn't seem to be having an effect on Christians, then what is the point of any of it, right? Right. Now, whether it's fair or unfair, a lot of non-Christians think that Christians are judgmental people. And we've experienced that on multiple occasions, especially, Dale, when you were in the role of being on staff at a church as a pastor, and we would be, you know, at a gathering or some social event, and, you know, people are being themselves (laughs) and who they are, and, you know, we're having great conversation, and then it comes around to, oh, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? And, And then it comes out that Dale's a pastor. And instantly, I've seen it, people will start talking different. They, they sit up straight? They, they're, yes, there's something about it. Or they'll apologize for any foul language they've used, which is usually, you know, every other word. Right. And they're always so apologetic to you as soon as they would find out that you're a pastor. And I think it's because there's this common understanding that to some degree, Christians are judgmental of the way non-Christians live. And, you know, and that still happens to me because people know that I have been a pastor and I'm involved with church and I serve uh, uh, on staff at our church part-time. And so some, I mean, in a group of friends, we're talking and someone drops an F-bomb and then they see that I'm standing there and they go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what are you going to apologize to me for? And I think part of that is this reputation that Christians have that that we're a little uptight, we take ourselves a little bit too seriously and we're going to get you. And I think another part of it, too, is that when non-Christians are in the presence of someone who is a Christian and they know what it means to be a Christian a little bit, at least in the morals of it, uh, I think they do feel that casts a little bit on them. Like they feel like they should be better. They like should a be, little bit of conviction. Yeah, they should, be, they should be a bit of a better person. So that's probably some of that mixed in there. It just has to do with them and where their heart's at in that moment. Uh, but I do think that also an, an, another part of it is that Christians are notorious for for just blasting you. Yeah, and it's not to say that we shouldn't aim to live separate, you know, apart from the rest of the world. It doesn't mean we need to fit into the world like a chameleon and begin to participate in the activities or or use the kind of language that that group of people is using just because we don't want them to 
assume we're judgmental. We can still live a holy life in these social settings and in our everyday lives around people who are non-believers and do it in such a way that doesn't cause them to instantly feel guilty for the way that they live. And that's also part of our witness. We are supposed to look different. And the Holy Spirit could be convicting them for the way they live simply by the fact that you live differently than them. And so don't doubt the work of the Holy Spirit and what he has called you to do and the way he's called you to live. And for that to be known among your friends that are non-Christians, that's the way it's supposed to be. But it shouldn't be to this degree of people thinking that you're instantly going to judge them. Yeah, but I think the good news here is that we have an opportunity. And so I think ending ending on a positive note there that right now we have an opportunity because the world is full of chaos and hate and just all manner of confusion right now. And so the Christian voice can be a unique voice that is a voice that's full of conviction, that is full of integrity, that is not going to budge on moral issues, but at the same time is authentic, humble, and empathetic. And really, when you look at the gospel accounts, that's everything that Jesus was. Mm. Jesus never compromised righteousness. But at the same time, he was pretty radical in the ways that he made people so uncomfortable with how empathetic he was towards people who were so outside the realm of what would be considered a righteous person. And I think we do have an opportunity to showcase that to people right now. Like the world is so toxic and and I think everyone feels tired of being toxic. Like we all need a cleanse from everything that is toxic in the world. And everyone feels it but they just don't know the answer. Right. And so even if you are talking with someone who holds a completely different view from you, instead of attacking them and bashing them and telling them why they're wrong. Or telling your Facebook friends why that person was wrong is, is more often what we do. Yes. So instead of doing all that, we can actually try and remain humble and empathetic and generous in our stance to listen to them and to try and hear where we're, they are coming from. It doesn't mean you change your view necessarily, but it just means you are kind to the person who has a different view. And it's likely they have a different view because they don't know Jesus. And so you have an opportunity to show them Jesus. Jesus is different than the rest of the world. And even though they don't understand that yet, you can still love them and be empathetic towards them. Yeah, and having a Christian worldview isn't just about having the right stance in an argument, the right viewpoint. It's also about how you embody that viewpoint and the manner in which you hold that discussion. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. We'd also love it if you head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. And be sure to come visit us at herandhim.com where you'll find show notes for this episode, our blog, and other resources to help you experience the abundant life that Jesus promised us. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. 
I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.